This is Not Quite Dead, a gal pal horror movie discussion podcast. We do deep dives on our favorite scary movies, but sometimes we really just like to keep it shallow. I'm your host, Kate. I'm Megan. Get ready for all the spoilers. Where do you stand on the M. Night Shyamalan fence? I actually enjoy M. Night Shyamalan movies. Starting us off with a tough question. <laughs> Me too. Okay. I'm so glad. I was worried you'd be the opposite. <laughs> I mean, they're not like Oscar winning, incredible movies, but there's definitely a place no. for them. I mean, I think I talk about popcorn movies all the time and M. Night Shyamalan movies are popcorn movies. They're fun. They're silly. They're goofy. (laughs) I was talking about us recording this episode, Knock at the Cabin, if you guys weren't aware yet, by, uh, well, by, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. With my group of hobby friends, we were talking movies and I admitted that I like them. I, I know I know he's got some issues, but but I like him. And boy, did I get shit for that. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> so divisive. I think that in the culture of the early to mid 2000s of uh, being ironic about things and sh- hating things really genuinely, M. Night Shyamalan just got lumped in there because he makes wildly popular movies that are kind of pseudo intellectual like they seem like they might be deep but they tend to be pretty surface level so it's just kind of easy cannon fodder for people to make fun of I think the real question is is what is your favorite M. Night Shyamalan movie oh yeah my favorite is Signs Signs is great Signs creeped me out when it came out I remember watching it in the dark it was in college we were in my boyfriend's dorm room and I was screaming like you'd see the alien walk across screen mm-hmm. uh, in that that camera from the, the Mexican family. And I was like, ah! you know how I do Kate, <laughs> yeah. when we're watching movies together. <laughs> it was like that the whole time. <laughs> so I enjoyed it. What about you? What's your favorite? You know, I like Unbreakable. I think that that one's really fun. It's a good kind of more action yeah. type M. Night Shyamalan movie. And surprisingly, I felt like Old that came out just a couple years ago was a really, really good movie. It's not without its flaws, but like had some really troubling existential psychological horror things happening in it that really kind of creeped me out. So I thought that one was a good one, too. Totally. That was the movie where I was like, okay, this guy is not off my list yet like he's still making stuff I enjoy watching and old was good if you guys haven't seen old I think it's still on HBO mm-hmm. we're gonna just recommend it but we need to talk about knock at the cabin which just came out this year yeah it came out in February it did pretty well um you know as of the time of recording it more than doubled its budget and gross it was a $20 million budget. In the two months that it's been out, it's made $54 million, like I said, at the time of recording, uh, with a 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is very solid, especially for a Shyamalan flick. Yeah, I imagine that's what the rest of his movies are kind of like, right? 60s, mm-hmm. 70s? Yeah. Like, you know, for the most part, people tend to like them. Critics tend to be okay with them. Not without his detractors, though. And guys, if you guys don't like the Rotten Tomato score or maybe you want to throw a little chaos at it, you guys should definitely go give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Give give us five stars while you're at it. Why not? (laughs) We would love to become Rotten Tomato certified. And one of the checklist items to do so is to have 200 ratings in the Apple Podcast app. 
So please head over, give us a rating, and come back and finish this episode. Who's in this movie, Kate? A bunch of people. The cast is pretty stacked with a great turn from Dave Bautista. Oh, I just love him so much now. He's so good in Dune. Uh, I can't stop thinking about him in Dune. And I'm so excited that he's coming back for the second one. He's my favorite. M. Night Shyamalan specifically wanted to cast him as the lead in this movie after he saw Dave Bautista in Blade Runner 2049. Oh, I missed him in that. Oh, he's in the opening scene only. He's the farmer. Okay. Yeah. He's only in like five minutes of Blade Runner, but it's a good performance. That's, well, good for him. I really haven't seen him before, and it seems like he just sort of popped up and is in things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got all of a sudden. He got a lot of headway because he was in a million and a half Marvel movies. Um, he's Drax, of course, in the Marvel movies. Oh, mm-hmm. no wonder I don't know him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a difference. He strikes me as like a colossus or something, but I don't know who Drax is, so I'll I'll take your word yeah. for it. <laughs> he plays a second grade teacher in this movie, which I thought was hilarious. I was like, this guy is the opposite of like soft, you know, child friendly dude. He's he has never come off to me as like another Arnold Schwarzenegger kindergarten cop type dude. So I really like that he was like a caregiver for children in this movie it was interesting yes very against type i loved it i am also a huge 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 jonathan groff fan i was so excited to watch this movie like solely because jonathan groff was in it i have not heard of this fellow but he looked like carrie elwes and also Dennis from Always Sunny. He does. So that's who I kept thinking of. He does have that look. He was in Mindhunter on Netflix. Oh. Yeah. He's a yes. big Broadway star, which I know you're not a musical person, so I'll forgive you for not knowing this, but he's been in a ton of musicals. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> not my fault. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the rest of the cast, um, we have uh, Ben Aldridge as our other lead, Rupert Grint. I uh, haven't seen him in anything for a while he, of Harry Potter fame. He's in the Apple show Servant, which makes sense why you wouldn't have seen mm-hmm. it. He Again, in that show, he plays an American. And I think his American accent needs a little work in this movie. <laughs> I like that they threw him a bone and made him um, a Bostonian. To try and like bridge the gap a little bit. I've heard that. Yeah. I've heard that British actors um, really prefer doing roles that let them do Southern accents because for some reason the like bridge Mm. between a British accent and a Southern American accent is like easier to cross than any other American accent. It's so wild how they all stem from this British accent. I mean, the South has a, a big mix of, of different things going on, but it's unless you're a linguist, right? It's not always obvious how these things transform over time. Mm-hmm. But that I'm not surprised to hear that. That's interesting. Yeah, I was happy to see him in this, although it was only for a minute. Yeah, <laughs> it, was so it was a very, very brief role. And there's really not a lot of people in this movie. The cast is pretty tight. We have um, a few other women, uh, Nikki Amuka Bird and Abby Quinn uh, kind of round out our villains, antagonists in this movie. And then we have Kristen Quee as Wen. Ooh, debatable. <laughs> I, we'll get into it. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, a Night Shyamalan. She was so oh, cute. She was so cute. Great kid. I wanted to see more of her. She's yeah. a really good child actor, which sometimes kids are very touch and go. <laughs> and of course, we have M. Night Shyamalan with his cameo. Always. Mm-hmm. If I had been 
M. Night Shyamalan in this movie, I think I would have cast myself as like a beachgoer when that tidal wave crashes. <sighs> I think that would have been fun. I know. So <laughs> many little extra opportunities. And he cast himself as an infomercial host, which is still pretty funny. But yeah, I ever since I saw Deep Impact at a very impressionable age, I think I was like eight or something when I saw it, the thought of a, you know, death by giant tidal wave has really like sunk into my consciousness in a real way. <laughs> so did you read the book this was based off of? I haven't. Because I haven't. I haven't either. And I do actually really want to go read it now. Um, so this was based on Me too. a novel that came out in 2018 called The Cabin at the End of the World. Once this book was released, it was almost immediately snatched up to get produced into a movie and the script was being bounced around Hollywood for a year or two. Once it landed with Shyamalan, the first thing he did was he rewrote the script and I haven't read the book because I don't know exactly what happened, but uh, according to Wikipedia, Shyamalan specifically purposefully changed the ending of the movie so that it is different from the book ending. The ending of the novel, spoilers, I mean, abound, is apparently a lot darker, but also a lot more vague and open-ended, right. whereas... Shyamalan's intention for the ending, which we can debate how successful he was with it, was to be a little bit more clear and optimistic with with the events. That's typical. Yeah. It feels like an M. Night Shyamalan change. Him. You know, I don't hate the idea of changing a book's ending. I hate the idea of changing the theme of the book or adapting it so much that you don't recognize the book, but I honestly am cool with endings changing. What about you? I like to think of adaptations as different entities, right? Like they're they're based on a source material, but I don't think that they're beholden to the source material. So I think that anytime someone makes a TV series or a movie based on a book, like it doesn't bother me if they change the race and gender of the main characters or alter some plot points or change the ending because it's an opportunity for a new creator to put their own spin on it. And I think it's interesting to put new perspectives on like a piece of literature. It like drives me crazy when people like lose their minds over like a character that was like originally a man in a book who's like now a woman in the movie. I'm like, get over yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe give it a shot and see yeah. what they're trying to say about it before you judge it. <laughs> it does make me really want to read the book, though, because I figured the book would be darker than this movie, which wraps up a bit neatly. I have it on my Libby list to check out from the library. Definitely. All right, Kate, before we dunk on Shyamalan anymore, Let's get a quick summary of this story. This story takes place at a vacation cabin where family Eric and Andrew and their daughter Wen are summering, I guess, when four very ominous visitors come to their house and tell them that one of them in the family has to die. Otherwise, the apocalypse will be unleashed onto the world. And there's some rules that we'll get into around how this needs to work. And if they don't play along, then bad things are going to continue to happen um, on a global scale plagues unleashed leading up to eventually a complete apocalypse if they don't give in to this demand by these visitors. And I think that that's sufficient to get us into, you know, dunking on Shyamalan because that's, yeah. that's really the movie. I mean, the movie takes place in almost one location for the whole movie. It's not quite like a bottle episode style, but it 
is all taking place kind of near or inside of this cabin. We have a really small cast. We've got the three family members and the four visitors putting this on them. It's a pretty quick movie too. I think it's runtime is under two hours, right? Yes. That was one of the reasons why we were so excited to watch it. It's a nice, short, tight movie. And I say tight because they don't overdo it with the details. I loved that. I think we can debate how tight it is as far as plot goes Mm -hmm. and loopholes Mm -hmm. go, but as far as getting the story out the door, it's pretty Mm -hmm. tight. I agree. I loved that. I loved that it didn't mess around. It got into the central drama and action immediately. It was great. Like, I think that Shyamalan really, for all of his issues, he really excels at getting good tension at the beginning of his movies. And this one totally does that. Like, right out the gate, there's great, great tension. And then to dunk on him a little bit, it does, like, lose steam as it goes. Like, it's hard to keep up the momentum that he establishes at the beginning. Well, he starts off with a very ominous encounter with Wen. She's this little tiny thing hanging out, catching grasshoppers. And this giant Dave Batista <laughs> approaches her and just starts asking her very, like, inquisitive, personal questions. He starts off pretending like, oh, we're just here to be friends. This is this is okay. Let's get to know each other. It's very creepy. And and they even shoot it. I think the cinematography is very cool because they get so close to the faces, which is also very unsettling. And, and the tension is right there. And as soon as we learn that this family has to kill each other and are not going to be killed by this group, I immediately was like, oh, okay, I'm not worried. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to, nobody in this family is going to die at the hands of these people. And so that's when the tension broke for me. That was pretty early, honestly, like maybe 20 minutes in. Definitely. I want to say something like that. It was a really good twist, I felt. I mean, M. Night is great with his twists, of course. And I felt like the twist here was these antagonists are putting this family into a pressure cooker situation they have to decide which one of them is going to die and if they don't the apocalypse is going to happen and i mean the central tension of course is like is the apocalypse going to happen these people just seem like they're crazy but even though they had all these weapons and even kind of roughed them up a little bit they then immediately like try and take care of them and are worried about them. And so mm-hmm. it really diffused it. Like even when they have to start, you know, killing themselves, the visitors, it didn't feel like there was a lot on the line, I guess. Right. And these four Deuterinos are kind of presented as the four horsemen. Like you kind of get that vibe from it. But I was watching it trying to figure out, well, who is who? Because all of these people are very nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're actually a very nice group of, well, Redmond aside, they're all very nice seeming people who legitimately seem like they care about the end of the world and don't want to hurt this family. Yes. I- so I was like, what are they? <laughs> what are they here? Yeah. Okay. So the central like metaphor allegory that is in this movie is that these four strangers are here to usher in or prevent the apocalypse. And so like naturally it's like, okay, they're the four horsemen. And there are so many different interpretations of just like historically and like Mm-hmm. of what the four horsemen can be right like there's different stories of them in literature and poetry and in the bible like there's so many different like interpretations of what they could be in this movie 
I had my interpretation of what each one was. And then M. Night Shyamalan just decided at the end of the movie as like a fuck you to the audience to be like, they're not the four horsemen. They act- actually represent the four like true characteristics of humanity or the true virtues of humanity. Mm. And I was like, do I buy this? I don't think I do. I think he just wanted to like pull one over on the audience for like one last time in this movie. Yeah, he's too optimistic. I that's the kind of shit I want to get away from when I read the book. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, how did we, how did we interpret these four? Like up until that point, it seemed kind of obvious who was who based on their jobs, based on the type of. Like even their like clothing choices. Yeah. And the types of, what do we call it? Like uh, elements of this apocalypse that they bring forth. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, it it all kind of ties in. So we can start with the easiest one, which I think is Adrian. Adrian. She's a cook. She works as a line cook. Um, she's all about feeding people, and so I thought she was really obviously famine. She makes eggs right for when, mm-hmm. and talks about being a line cook. M night tries to tell us that Adrian represents nourishment. It's like he's trying to like say like, oh, you think that this person represents famine, but actually they represent like caring or nourishing as like a positive virtue Mm -hmm. of these people. And I just, it left a bad taste in my mouth. (laughs) It was trying to make them too good. Not a nourishing taste? No. Yeah. (laughs) It almost seems like they're the opposite, right? Like they are supposed to be this apocalyptic figure, but it flips it on its head and the opposite of famine is nourishment. Mm -hmm. But we get to Redmond and he's he's such an angry boy. He's so awful and rude. And also he's he's who attacked uh, this couple at a bar. And he's definitely war, right? Yeah. He's got to be war. He's definitely war. He's wearing red. He's impatient. He, like, wants to rough these guys up. They even, like, try and throw this in into the plot where the family, Andrew and Eric, they're like, Andrew especially says, I know this guy. This is the guy who attacked me at a bar years ago. Like, these people aren't seeing visions and trying to prevent the apocalypse. These are, you know, homophobes with an agenda to kill some gay people. So it's... This was weird. Weird. Yeah, it's a weird, like, kind of twist that they threw in there that Redmond was a guy that they had known. But at the end, I thought it was really funny that M. Night Shyamalan said that he's still war. He's still wrath. Like, because... (laughs) Like human, remember he said. I mean, like, what was he thinking? Like, <laughs> why? I think because they were trying to show that, like, yes, there is badness in humanity, but they're still worth saving. I think that that's what he was trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, look at all of this good, and like seventy five percent of people are are good, and so even though twenty five percent of people, one out of four people, are bad. <laughs> they're still all worth saving. Like, I think that that's the message he's trying to go for. But I just, like, could not have rolled my eyes harder when it's like, oh, Redman is not the inverse of himself. He just is himself. He's just a bad person. He bucks this whole contrasted interpretation that we're being given. Like, well, why is this guy different? Yeah. Everyone else is supposed to be good, right? Mm-hmm. I I was trying to think of something good about this guy to pull. Like, what what is his purpose in this group? Why is it relevant to show him beating up Andrew at the bar? That totally threw me. I was like, wait a minute, this group, like, they're here to help, and they're here to help end the apocalypse. But this guy isn't just a jerk. He was a big moment in this family's life. 
what's the connection? Why is that relevant? Why is he, why did they make that connection in this movie? I know. If I were to like really bend over backwards in terms of like a, like a lit interpretation on it, it's, he is the challenge, right? To the faith. Yeah. Like with no challenge to faith, then faith is like meaningless, right? Like you need to have a challenge mm-hmm. to your faith in order to like show that it's been tested and is still true. And so it's like, okay, we're going to throw this curveball in here. And if you're able to get over this and still believe us and, and go with this, then it shows that you truly believe. It's a very like religious take, which this movie has like a ton of religious undertones. Naturally, it's about the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So that's a very like, I don't know, Judeo-Christian like <laughs> take on it. You have to have some like kind of challenge to it. I mean, the challenge to me is believing this nonsense anyway, but we'll get to that <laughs> <I> later. <know. laughs> Sabrina... Sabrina is another pretty obvious one she's a nurse Mm -hmm. so she represents disease Mm -hmm. um, or in this case caring getting better right wellness maybe yeah yeah this one was fine Sabrina was a fine character I mean I appreciated that anytime someone got hurt Sabrina was there to be a nurse (laughs) even though she's like one of you still needs to die (laughs) I'm gonna help you but (laughs) oh my god as soon as Eric gets the concussion I was like well I guess he's the one that should die (laughs) and that's like again like 20 minutes into the movie I was like well just pick Eric he's a goner anyway I know (laughs) there's so so frequently that I watch full-length movies and like deeply wish to see a cut of the movie that would be like a short film like what if someone like just wildly edited this movie down into like 30 minutes Like, what would it be like? Mm. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) Leonard, I was immediately like, oh, this guy is deaf. He's got to be deaf. He's wearing white. Um, Death, of course, rides on a white horse. And he's the leader. And he's really kind of the mouthpiece for this group of four strangers to this cabin he's the one laying out the terms and what's going to happen and he's really trying to guide their decision and he's also the you know kind of last one with them he starts with the family and then through the whole movie he he's there and he's the very last one with the family after all the other events transpire and he helps kill the other three if if not, <laughs> does it himself. Oh, my God. Ugh, nitpick on this movie. They're like, these aren't weapons. They're tools. And it's like, yeah, tools to kill each other. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, who cares? Like, look at you people. This is These are definitely weapons at this point. Nice try, though. They bring some really weird rules with them. I mean, they're straightforward, they're straightforward, but it's just not clear to me how the rules work. They lay out the rules at the beginning that between the dads, Eric and Andrew, and when the three of them, one of them has to die and they need to come to an agreement on which one of them is going to die. And that person cannot die by suicide. And then the rules kind of break down from there (laughs) because the rest of it is not (laughs) quite as clear because then if they don't decide by some amount of time interval, I don't think they say the time interval. It's not clear. clear. Then one of the four strangers is quote unquote sacrificed, right? They, They kill one of these visitors. And upon their death, it it will unleash a plague. And this plague is like what they've been seeing visions of and is what drove them to do this in the, in the first place, what is spurring this whole plot along. And then if all four of them die, the apocalypse will be unleashed. 
I felt like I was a little vague what the actual apocalypse would be. Right. I, I was like, does everyone just stop breathing? Does all the shit just keep happening over and over? The planes keep falling from the sky. Mm-hmm. But that's not going to wipe out humanity. I guess disease would eventually. Um, but that would take a while, right? It it started out in one pocket of the world and didn't really escape yet. Right. It felt like there were the four plagues that I guess in total sum would be the apocalypse. But I feel like when you think of apocalypse, you think of like end game event, right? Like, okay, we've had the four plagues and now we have, I don't know, acid blood raining from the sky to kill everybody. I don't know. Like something that's like horrible. Right. (laughs) Or just you can't breathe anymore like everyone just dies you just you just yeah, die like a re- like a reaping. I, I mean like a true, doesn't need to have an explanation right like a true yeah. reaping of humanity happens at the end but they weren't really clear on that which i felt like also kind of took the wind out of the sails on the momentum of the plot it also said that they have to decide which three of them die now i'm assuming that applied to the whole family but when was in the treehouse the whole time she didn't she didn't decide she didn't know who was chosen she so is that fair she didn't although it seemed like when daddy andrew came to go get when she like knew she was like oh daddy eric sacrificed himself or daddy eric saved yeah everybody Bad. so yeah, she didn't yeah. decide though. A little tricky. Yeah, rules seemed bendable. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask you, Kate. We have to play pull the lever, mm-hmm. and we need to test each other's limits on when we would partake in this sort of decision not to unleash the apocalypse. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, uh, actually, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the meme that shows a dude on some train tracks and another dude deciding whether or not to pull the lever. And if you do pull the lever, you kill your friend on the train tracks. But if you don't, the train veers off into the nearby town and kills everybody there. Um, Meme changes the meaning, but anyway, the, the image is there. Image is is pretty familiar. So, Kate, I got to ask you, we got to start at the bottom and work our way up and see what it would take for us to pull the lever. (laughs) All right. So, these are the levels that I came up with. And I don't have an answer to this yet. I tried not to think about it because I didn't want to be, I wanted to have to think about it with you because I think this is a hard question to answer. Mm -hmm. So, the five levels I came up with of destruction. Number one, a nearby school is wiped out. Number two, a nearby town is wiped out. Number three, a nuclear blast occurs in a foreign country. Your favorite animal goes extinct or the extinction of plankton, which would essentially wipe out humanity. I love it. So let's go. Yeah. Let's go through the list and see how far you would have to go before you would pull the lever. And me too. Okay. (laughs) Number one, a stranger. So what would it take for you to pull the lever on a stranger? Basically, you sacrifice some stranger and it prevents what level on this list? Would you do it to prevent a nearby school from being wiped out? I would. First level, baby. So long, stranger. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, stranger. (laughs) I'm trying to think, like, what would make me sad? Who would this stranger have to be? I I don't actually know. They're a stranger. So you don't know. Yeah. I don't want to know a damn thing about them. I don't want to know what gender they are. I don't want to know how old they are. I don't want to know about their family or their job. Nothing. Just do it. <laughs> I guess that means it couldn't be Trump, right? No, 
Does he count as a I don't stranger? Think he does. I think he has to be someone unknown <sighs> to you. All right. Which makes it even easier. Right, that's fair. If it was like, would you rather off a stranger or like this person you met five minutes ago? I'd be like the stranger, obviously. Like it makes it so easy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Pick a pet. Which pet are you going to pick? Sydney or Oslo? Um, oh, don't give me that because I'll pick Oslo who's got like minutes left on All his right. countdown anyway. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go with Bartok. He's my favorite cat. What level? What level would it take for you? Um, the school, again. Would you do it at the school at the sc- being wiped out? At the out? school, yeah. again. Okay. Yeah. I hate to say it, but I would too. I would choose the school over Bartok, which makes me very sad to admit. I'm sorry, Bartok. Oh, see, it doesn't make me sad to admit that. I love, I love my pets, but a school? I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. You got kids now. I know, right? <laughs> okay, Kate. This next one's tough. It's your best friend. <laughs> Me <laughs> and you. Oh, my God, Megan. <laughs> the truth will come out. <laughs> oh, I'm really struggling here. Yeah. Okay, I'll go okay. first. <laughs> So that you can, so that you can feel bad when you pick school. <laughs> okay, Kate, I am going to let, I'm going to let the UK take the nuclear blast oh, shit. anywhere okay. in the UK. Yeah. And I, oh, so we get to pick, uh, you know what, if I'm going to do that. Because <laughs> I pick Russia. Sure, I why not? Russia. Let's, let's, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I went for like a country full of people that I actually really like. <laughs> and, and no. Um, let me say I will go up to the extinction of oh would I extinct dolphins? I don't think I would. Ugh, Kate. For Kate, no dolphins. What happens if there's no dolphins? I feel like that would really everyone's just kind of sad, like, right? Fuck up an ecosystem. It would, but I'm going to go with extinction of my favorite animal. You know, I would take you up to that it's level. It's so funny that you ordered this list and I didn't because I definitely would have put extinction <laughs> of favorite animal below nuclear blast. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Let's let's change it up then <laughs> no, no, for no. you. I'm like I like animals more than strangers in another country. I'm like, oh, that's right. Extinction of your favorite animal is the second highest one. I guess I could let red pandas die. That's fine. I would let red pandas die for you. They're cute, but I think that they're already okay. endangered. But, yeah, yeah, but you wouldn't do the nuclear blast. You'd let me have it at the nuclear blast. Yeah, I think I would. I think I would let you die for nuclear blast. That's fair. Okay, next one. Offing your spouse. So this is Mike and Zach. I would also do nuclear blast. Yeah. Okay. Same. I, uh, well, for me, my order is favorite animal. I would uh, forego dolphins <laughs> to save Zach. <laughs> what would I do? I think I would forego dolphins to save Zach. Okay. And that's where I would stop. Yeah. I would stop just short of e- extinction of plankton. This last one. <laughs> this last one, Kate. <laughs> Only you can answer this one. I, I can't. I don't have a kid. What would it take for you? What would you have to, what would you be willing to let happen in order to save your child? Um, extinction of plankton, baby. I think even when we were watching this movie, I was like, okay, if the option is like killing my kid to stop the apocalypse or like riding out the apocalypse with my kid, I would ride out the apocalypse with my kid. <laughs> oh man, Levi is going to grow up in a barren wasteland, be, but he'll have his it's mom. It's going to be like the road. <laughs> We're just trying to get to the ocean. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I don't have a kid, so I can't answer that. I would say sure I'd I'd kill my kid to uh prevent 
wiping out of humanity, but that's very easy to say when you don't have one. <laughs> so it doesn't count. Yeah. It's crazy how it like just totally fucks up your brain. <laughs> I don't know. I think it makes sense. I think it's good that you want to save your child. I think that's a very normal mother response, but I do love that everyone was here to enjoy Kate wiping out humanity for Levi. That's so sweet. I would. All of humanity, just numbers on a screen to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> he is the Leviathan. So maybe it's meant to be. Oh, my goodness. But OK, so these bozos kill themselves to prevent this stuff from happening. They are essentially a suicide cult right? They are a very committed suicide cult. They do not balk or run away from killing themselves when they say that they need to die. That was probably one of the most shocking things about this movie to me was just how ready they were to go. No kidding. We've seen some very famous suicide cults in history, especially, uh, I don't know, there's been a lot of Netflix documentaries and shows about stuff recently, a lot of podcasts about these crazy people. But I mean, top three suicide cults in America. Got to go with Heaven's Gate. Mm-hmm. They were crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to join a spacecraft to get saved. Right. It was. What's up with that? It was timed with um, the Halibop. Comet, right? Yeah. yeah. They decided that to get on this spaceship, or they were led to believe that they uh, needed to get rid of all their earthly possessions and kill themselves in order to join the spacecraft. Yeah, in their Adidas. Kind of kooky. <laughs> <laughs> Jonestown, another big one. Classic. This one was a mess. Yeah. They ended up down in Guyana, and I don't think people were as willing in this one. It didn't come across that people were feeling too great about this. Their members were, like, tortured into submission, mm -hmm. uh, like, as you know, if they were disobeying rules and whatnot. Jim Jones had total sexual control of the women and children. It wasn't fun. Yeah, this one is pretty horrific i think especially when i think this is the case where they were drinking the poisoned kool-aid of course and it wasn't like everyone drank this kool-aid and they like laid down and fell asleep and died it was like a painful prolonged death it was awful. that the people at the end of the line were witnessing as the people at the beginning of the line were dying and they were being forced to stay in line and forced to drink this. Just absolutely horrific. Kids crying, people crying, just what a mess. There were inspectors that went, right? Mm -hmm. There were government officials that went to check this place out due to the allegations and they were murdered too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Seventh-day Adventists in Waco, Texas, was the other really big suicide cult here in America. And this had some interesting tie-ins to the FBI. There still is some theories out there that the demise of this cult could have been caused by the FBI. That's so interesting. I really don't know much about this one. Yeah, it's a weird one. But the FBI had a warrant to go search the premises because of the allegations of child abuse. Um, you know, there were child brides and things like that and illegal firearm usage. And it led to this huge shootout where the members inside of the cult or inside of the, whatever you want to call it, compound, they set fire to it from inside and took themselves out that way in order to evade the FBI. And that's where the controversy is. Um, there are some people who think the FBI set the fire as a cover-up. Wow. I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah. No, we learned about how friendly the FBI is during the Frighteners, Kate, if you remember. <sighs> that's right. <laughs> There's also been 
some interesting ritual suicides throughout history, in, particularly in foreign countries. There's seppuku, pretty well-known Japanese uh, suicide act in order to retain your honor or uh, prevent yourself from being captured by your enemies in wartime. And what they would do is stick themselves with a, I guess, a knife or a blade or whatever, uh, sword, and disembowel themselves <laughs> before having their heads chopped off by, I guess, a friend. <laughs> but um, so brutal. this was documented into the 1900s. Yeah. So it's been, I mean, that's pretty recent for this kind of thing to keep happening. Buddhist protests, though, too, which... Uh, we've even seen protests in the Buddhist fashion of self-immolation happening as recently as last year, where you know people light themselves on fire to protest things, which is mm -hmm. another incredibly intense way to Ugh. go. <laughs> Not how I would choose it. And then 14th century uh, India there was the practice of female mass suicide in order to avoid capture and dishonor at the hands of their enemies. You kind of get like a little play on this in Game of Thrones, um, but I'm sure this is not a unique situation throughout history. <laughs> Fun times, guys. Suicide cults. Suicide. Read about it more <laughs> with your next Google search. But these four, these four uh, do also commit suicide one in a row. And every time they commit suicide, something crazy happens. So I was kind of like, wait, what's the point of the suicide? <laughs> what is it preventing? I know. It's like the suicide is supposed to be spurring the family into action. Like they would see what's happening in the world and and think, oh, this is for real. So I actually need to do something here. So the reason why these four strangers are in this house is to prevent these plagues and the ultimate apocalypse from happening. And they see these visions. And I did not feel like the plagues that happened like related as well to the deaths as they could have. Like it felt like they could have matched a little bit more nicely. I also thought that was weird. I thought it was weird that the pestilence came after Adrian. I thought, oh, that would make more sense coming after Sabrina, the nurse. Yes, I agree. So first we have Redmond, who is our war stand-in. He dies first. And the vision that he they had seen was that oceans will rise. And this is when we get that really fun mega tsunami scene. Mega fun, aka mega terrifying. <laughs> that that scene reminded me of Interstellar, and it put me back in that <laughs> spot where I was watching that huge wave come at the team and it was so overwhelming to see and that I felt the same way watching this scene in Knock at the Cabin. It's like very similar feeling to when I look over a ledge. I, I really do not like heights. Um, I get just as dizzy if I look up at something really tall. It like freaks me out and I have to stop looking. Mm -hmm. I really hate heights no matter what the extreme is from my perspective really uncomfortable scene for me. I loved it. I thought the effects were really good. The way that people were behaving on the beach was exactly how people in real life would behave on a beach where they're just standing dumbly looking at this like um, skyscraper height wave coming at them. Uh, but I just love it. I love watching like water scenes it reminds me of like day after tomorrow and um mm. deep impact like i mentioned before uh but not war related like you would think right you'd think it would be bombs or something yeah big nuclear bombs right i guess a nuclear holocaust would yeah. like 
pretty much be the apocalypse. <laughs> they needed to pull back. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> we talked, we mentioned Adrian, the flu virus pandemic spreads. Mm -hmm. Again, for her, I would have imagined blight. Mm hmm. Or some sort of plague on the animals or climate change. Food. Something. Yeah. Like, you know, like Sure. Yeah, definitely. Something related to yeah, blight is a great term for it. But no, it's it's a pandemic. And a mm -hmm. kind of isolated one. And then Sabrina. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. It didn't even it wasn't too far reaching. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess it was just waiting for its time to shine. <laughs> like COVID. Sabrina, again, she is the nurse. And after she dies, planes start falling out of the sky. This is the sky will fall. And this I felt like very easily could have been nuclear bombs. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Being dropped. Like that could also be sky will fall and be uh, Redmond's. I totally agree. I think that it doesn't totally line up. Also, airplanes falling out of the sky didn't feel like as scary to me. Although I guess when you think about like the thousands of planes that fly every single day and like the hundreds of people that are on every single plane, it is probably pretty terrifying. Oh. For them, at least, I guess, and whoever you land on. But I was frightened thinking about that like I've been on a plane relatively close to right now which is when we're recording um, not necessarily when this episode goes live but I've been on a plane like I want to say four or five times in the last month hate it but thinking about this while I was on the plane was not pleasant I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> especially exiting Denver which I've been flying through each time there's always turbulence flying in and out of Denver. And when we're coming out or, or into it, like right at the edge, you know, you're, you're up 10,000 feet or so at least. And the plane is shaking and I'm like, okay, the lid's going to rip off this plane <laughs> and I've got to stay calm. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, what I do when that happens. And so this was a scary one for me. I felt like Leonard's was very anticlimactic his vision was that the sky will darken and after he slits his own throat at the very end we see clouds rolling in and lightning strikes starting and I was like okay <laughs> that's not like enough I mean I felt like this needed to be ushering in the big bad, the big apocalyptic event. And mm -hmm. it just felt like everything was kind of culminating, but not like getting bigger. Yeah. We kind of got blue balled with this one, I think. Yeah. Before we move on to some of our favorite apocalyptic ideas, we had a lot of suicide talk in this episode. And so I want to mention if you're thinking about suicide or worried about a friend or loved one, or would just like some emotional support, there are lines in pretty much every country. Um, the United States text helpline is 988. We will share links to where you can get some help. You're not alone. Kate, I love an apocalypse movie or story. Like it's actually probably my favorite horror genre. Hey, what are some that. of your favorites? Oh, I am fresh off of The Last of Us, which is a mm. really great take on the zombie apocalypse, which when done well is chef's kiss. I do love a good zombie apocalypse or a good foreign body invading humanity. Um, it's great. I love it because I love the man versus nature of it it's man versus man but it's man versus man with a twist zombies like i've said previously on this podcast are my favorite horror movie monsters so i love a good zombie apocalypse 28 days later is probably my favorite zombie movie 
Plague and Blight are also a big hit with me. I I like the idea of man having to deal with the reality of starvation or high possibility of death mm-hmm. um, and not being chased by by monsters. You don't always need monsters. Sometimes people become the biggest monsters. And I'm going to throw it out there again. The Stand, my favorite book, does this very well. It's a very cool plague story. Interstellar, we get to see some blight. Very scary and kind of sad. And The Road, you mentioned The Road earlier. The Road is horrifying. It's just one of these quiet, horrifying movies where people turn to cannibalism because there's no food left. Ugh, pretty bleak. Awful. <laughs> we also see fertility issues in some of these. Handmaid's Tale is a, you know, really popular one recently. Also, uh, Children of Men from early 2000s is another really good example mm-hmm. in the genre. and really striking about how humans can really turn on each other and really how humans can really turn against women in an apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Um, Even uh, Mad Max Fury Road um, has some, you know, fertility stuff in it. You know, women are enslaved by the, (laughs) oh God, I don't remember his name. (laughs) Um, The Imperator. Yeah, I forget his name too, but he's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that um, he can try and have some non-disfigured babies. So yeah, it's Ugh. a pretty gross, gross one, but it yields some good content. And then another great apocalyptic subgenre are magical interferences, we'll say. Um, and I think The Leftovers is a great example of this type of apocalypse. There's a lot of reference to God when this sort of thing, when this sort of scenario pops up, but it's never really clear why it's happening. And so everybody gets to sort of interpret why this is happening and you get some really wild theories and wild storylines when that comes up. This, eventually, they all inevitably, eventually, they all inevitably clash since not everybody is on the same page. The Leftovers is my favorite TV show of all time. If you're listening to this and you haven't watched it, please go watch it. It's really, really good. Do it for Kate. Do it for me. There's only three seasons. (laughs) So at the end of all this, we've talked through the plot. We've talked apocalypses and cults. How did you feel about these guys? Did you believe them? Did did this feel like it was really about to happen in this movie? This is so unsatisfying, but I think the movie wants you to believe that this was real and happening, but I just could not believe it. I am with Daddy Andrew, not Daddy Eric. <laughs> Daddy Andrew was like, this is all a coincidence or they're just reading into events with the type of plagues that are happening, the mega tsunami, the pandemic, even like to some degree, the like planes falling out of the sky. I was thinking about how with our 24 hour news cycle, where you're always hearing about horrible shit happening on the other side of the world, where it's like, oh, there's a new disease, you know, 5,000 miles away from you that just killed 200 people or Malaysian plane crash. You know, like we hear about things like this all the time. And like, yeah, if you have a particularly bad news day, you could be like, is this it? (laughs) Is Donald Trump getting reelected again? Like what's happening? Like, (laughs) Oh God. (gasps) That is the apocalypse. I I felt the same way, Kate. I was like, This movie says this is happening, so I'm going to believe it because it's the kind of movie it is, but I don't believe it. If I were these people, if I was this family and had to make this decision, 
I would still be saying, I have not seen anything that proves that this is us that has to make this decision. Yeah. Like clearly a lot of weird shit is happening. Clearly something biblical is is here, but I still don't understand why you think it would be me and I refuse to partake in your little game. So have fun killing yourselves because I'm not participating. And honestly, Kate, I was giving the movie every chance to convince me. I was there for it. I was like waiting for the nail in the coffin. And like you said, the sky darkens at the end. I'm like, okay, uh, dark sky. I'm still not killing my husband and child. <laughs> it's not happening. Yeah, they really buy into it. Eric and Andrew and Wen, they buy into it at the end. and. Yeah, like you called 20 minutes in. The concussed husband is the one who gets it. <laughs> and I just... Yeah. There were a lot of moments in the last like 10 minutes of the movie where they could have ended the movie and it would have been more open-ended, probably more similar to the, how the book ended, um, I'm imagining, that would have made for a really interesting movie. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan has no self-restraint so he could not like leave it alone he just had to like show us <laughs> continuing scenes of Andrew and Wen <laughs> um going on and it didn't convince me more like the more I was watching it the more I was like I'm still not convinced like things are fine now maybe things just would have been fine like it looked like a storm rolled in and then a storm right. rolled out like, that's exactly what it looks like. You guys are in the woods. <laughs> this happens. And I'll be honest with you, the explanation provided for why this family was chosen was that their love was so pure that they had to make this decision. They gave us a bunch of flashbacks. I'm sorry. I didn't see what was so goddamn pure about their love that you couldn't say about a I don't know, a hundred couples you might know. Like, yeah, sure, they're showing you snippets of this nice family, but families have their issues. We saw wrath in Andrew. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't buy it. I don't buy it, even though the end of the movie does sort of show us, okay, this ended the I guess this ended the apocalypse because the apocalypse stopped. But I still am not fully convinced that they stopped the apocalypse. I agree. I think I'm like using too much of like a real world lens on it to like influence my thinking. But the fact that so frequently you'll read a news article that's like, hey, all of the stock markets are about to crash, which means that half of America is about to be homeless. And also there's no more eggs anymore. And if there are eggs, they're a million dollars each. You know, like you read things like that and then like you wait a week and like the world just kind of keeps going. So I'm like, I don't know, maybe it's a commentary on how things are today. I would I would be very interested to read the book to see what the author's take Me too. on it is versus M. Night Shyamalan's eternal optimism. <laughs> well, I got to say, again, I like this movie. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it, but I do. It, like you said, it's a good popcorn flick. Acting's great. Cinematography's great. And it's interesting. It's an interesting movie to watch. It just doesn't sell me on what it's trying to sell me is my issue. And so I think the Rotten Tomatoes score is actually very fair. What about you, Kate? I love this one. I thought it was great. I <laughs> like dunking on it. But I mean, while we were watching it, it was so entertaining. And while we were watching it, I felt like I had a lot to say about it and think about. And it was enjoyable. So, I mean, if you are into M. Night Shyamalan or even not, like, it's just a fun movie. I would recommend it. I would, too. Just don't take it too serious and you should be good. Yeah. Take it a little serious. 
next week we will catch you for Poltergeist. But before you go, don't forget, please stop at the Apple Podcast app and give us a rating. It'll help us out. This was Not Quite Dead. Check out our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Not Quite Dead Podcast and on Twitter at NQD underscore podcast. Follow our blog for bonus content at notquitedeadpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And happy watching.